Well, thank you, Quartet, for that magnificent singing. Good morning. It's great to be with you. It's a privilege for me to open God's Word with you this morning, especially here in chapel at Southwestern Seminary as we begin a new semester. This morning, I'd like to talk with you about serving the church, serving the church. Upon joining the Southwestern faculty five years ago, I came quickly to appreciate uh, the emphasis that one finds here at Southwestern on serving the church. Yet, though all our various churches, of course, seek to be faithful local expressions of the body of Christ, we know that this does not simply happen uh, carelessly, passively, or haphazardly. Rather, each one of us, uh, individual believers, uh, we all share certain common commitments, indeed responsibilities toward one another in the body of Christ. And of course, this involves our serving. And so this morning, I would like to consider with you what is the biblical framework for a church that by the power of the Holy Spirit serves in unity leading to love. So join me, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Ephesians. <laughs> As you know, there are numerous examples in Scripture of believers who serve the church well and faithfully. And since we'll be spending our time in Ephesians this morning, as you find your place there, allow me to recall to mind an example of two great servants of the church, Paul and Barnabas. Consider their example. So you remember in Acts chapter 14, we find what is just the fascinating uh, account of the second half of Paul's first missionary journey with uh, Barnabas. The previous chapter in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit had set aside Saul, uh, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas for the purpose of bringing the gospel through the Northeast Mediterranean world. And so Paul and Barnabas set out from Antioch, like sailed to the island of Cyprus, and from there up to Perga, from there to another Antioch, this one in Pisidia, so we call it Pisidian Antioch, from there up to Iconium, from there about 18 miles south to Lystra, and a bit further southwest to Derby. And so when Paul and Barnabas finally arrive in the city of Derby, they have traveled about 650 miles. And it's at this point in their journey that we find three short verses in Acts uh, 14 that I think will be instructive for us this morning. Let me read Acts 14, 21 through 23 for us. After they had proclaimed the good news in that city, Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. They strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, we must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. And when they had appointed elders for them in the various churches, they, with prayer and fasting, entrusted them to the protection of the Lord in whom they had believed. Wow. Although these verses, I think, are easily just read right over, we find here that Paul and Barnabas are superb examples of believers who serve the church faithfully, They're in their case as missionaries and church planners. But in this short passage, we see, I think, uh, what is something of a glimpse into the mindset, the mentality of a believer who is committed to serving the church. Let me point out just two things for you here. In the first case, we, th we see that Paul and Barnabas are willing to forsake convenience. 
When they arrive in Derby, uh, they're only about 100 miles from Paul's hometown of Tarsus, and Tarsus is only about 85 miles to uh, their ascending church back in Antioch. Despite that, though, they turn on their heels and retrace their steps hundreds of miles out of the way, mind you, without the use of motor vehicle transportation. And why would they do this? Well, because they recognize the importance of serving the churches that they had planted earlier. We see also in their example a willingness to forsake comfort, not only to forsake convenience, but also comfort. Remember, from the time of their first stop on Cyprus, they had faced very real uh, opposition and obstacles in the form of mobs, <laughs> uh, various murder attempts. Yet, despite these hardships, in Acts 14.21, we read that they turned around and went back to Antioch and Iconium and so on. The very places where weeks or months before, mobs had run them out of town and attempts had been made on their life. Now, why in the world? I mean, who in their right mind would go back to these uh, cities where they've had these experiences? Well, ones who recognize the importance of serving the church. So, with the example of Paul and Barnabas in mind as uh, great servants of the church, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and consider what is the biblical framework for serving the church. In these verses, Paul addresses how we are to serve the church. But if we come to the passage expecting to find, you know, a list of particular actions to take, list of specific activities or programs or initiatives to launch in our churches, we will be disappointed. We'll find no such list, uh, indeed, anywhere in Ephesians. In fact, when you first glance at the passage, you might not even think that serving the church is what Paul is talking about. But I'm afraid that's the case only because we are sometimes guilty of thinking of church service in a way that is contrary to what we find here in Paul's description. So let's read the passage together and consider what Paul instructs regarding serving the church. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you two were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of the gift of Christ, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he captured captives. He gave gifts to men. Now, what is the meaning of he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower regions, namely the earth? He, the very one who descended, is also the one who ascended above all the heavens in order to fill all things. It was he, Christ, <clears throat> who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is, to build up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person, attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes, but practicing the truth in love we will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. And finally, verse 16, from him the whole body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament, 
As each one does its part, the body grows in love. In these verses, Paul explains that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we serve the church in unity leading to love. So let's unpack what he says here. Notice Paul's starting point in the first six verses. He says that on the basis of our salvation, uh, as he puts it, the calling with which we have been called. You see that in verse 1, verse 4, verse 5. It's on this basis that we have been given the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. Since this is what provides for us the theological basis for the remainder of Paul's argument, it's important that we really understand what he's saying here. So let's talk about this. We'll find in the passage that Paul develops two distinct notions of unity. The first, uh, spiritual unity, is not something that we are responsible for at all, precisely because none of us is in any way responsible for our own salvation. Our salvation, rather, is accomplished entirely by God. When Paul refers to the spiritual unity accomplished in salvation, he is referring to the Holy Spirit's work of uniting each of us believers into God's family. In fact, I think the idea of a family really illustrates Paul's point here just beautifully. Uh, When you were born onto this earth, you, of course, were born into a family. I was born into the Lofton family, and so I am and always will be a member of the Lofton family. In fact, everyone in my family is united in being a Lofton. But just as I did nothing whatsoever to bring about that reality of my being part of the Lofton family, so in the same way, nothing you or I do, in fact, nothing any of us do, bring us into God's family. But having received salvation, we are united in God's family. That is a theological reality. It's fixed. It's unchangeable. Nothing you or I can do can change that fact because it is secured by God. As believers, we have been, we are spiritually united. Done deal. This tells us, I think, the first thing that we need to understand if we're to understand what Paul thinks of as serving the church. When we talk about serving the church, we are not talking about serving, of course, a physical structure or a legal entity or any particular arrangement or set of programs or initiatives. That's not what it's about. Serving the church just is serving one another. Believers, we are the church. Those of us whom God has united into his family are the church. So take a look around you. Uh, When you get to church on Sunday, have a look at your brothers and sisters on the pews. When we talk about serving the church, we're literally talking about serving those folks, one another. Now, upon being born into God's family through faith in the Lord Jesus, each of us is given certain spiritual gifts. Uh, Look back in our text here in chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, to each one of us, grace was given. Grace. Grace is an important term in in the scriptures. In fact, in the New Testament, it's used 155 times. And as Christians, we're all pretty familiar with the concept of grace. It is God's undeserved or unmerited favor, both in his graciously providing salvation to us through the Lord Jesus, but also in his empowering us to live out our faith. In this passage, in verse 7, Paul is using the term grace specifically in this second sense. As the late commentator Harold Honer puts it, Paul is referring to a particular enablement given to each believer to empower them for ministry. Let me give you that again. 
He's referring by the word grace here to a particular enablement given to each believer to empower them for ministry. Now, you recall in a context throughout the letter of Ephesians, Paul has been using the continued metaphor of a physical body to describe the church. The various parts of a body each contribute in some way to that body's healthy or proper functioning. And so Paul's point here is that in the same way, each of us individual believers as parts of the body of Christ have been given the ability in the form of spiritual gifts to contribute to the ministry of the church. In fact, when we understand the importance of that point here, we'll find it's no surprise that the same point is developed in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 12, sort of throughout that chapter, and also in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. But here in verse uh, 11 of Ephesians 4, Paul explains that some God has given some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And I think, and unfortunately, this verse is sometimes misunderstood in a way that tends to obscure or confuse Paul's point. Paul has already said earlier in verse 7 that each one of us, that is, every Christian without exception, is given, has been given certain spiritual gifts to enable us to perform ministry. But here in verse 11, he says that in addition to the spiritual gifts each of us individually has been given, we, the church, collectively have been provided with certain gifted persons. Uh, think, for example, of your pastoral staff or perhaps certain Sunday school teachers at your church. And why is this? Well, he tells us in the next verse, in verse 12. The reason God has given these gifted persons to us, the church, collectively, is what does Paul say? He says they're given in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, their job is to equip each of us individually, uh, the church, for service. And that ministry or service is, Paul says here in verse 12, the building up of the body of Christ. That is the church. All right, so let's pause a moment. Be sure we're tracking with the big picture Paul is developing for us here. <clears throat> he says every single one of us individually on being born into God's family is given certain spiritual gifts, uh, these graces, as Paul calls them in verse 7. And this is done for the purpose of enabling us or empowering us to perform the work of ministry. But simply being given certain spiritual gifts does not make us automatically experts in the exercise of those gifts. We, we find that we are not automatically or immediately virtuosos in the ministry simply in virtue of having spiritual gifts. And I think we all know this from experience. Certainly I do. God has therefore given certain believers back to us corporately uh, for the purpose of equipping us to use our gifts for the building up of the body. And this is why Paul describes these people as themselves gifts, spiritual gifts given back to the collective body. Does that make sense? So Paul's point in verses 7 through 12 gives us the second thing we need to understand if we're to understand the notion of serving the church. Serving the church is not the job of professional Christians, precisely because there is no such thing as a professional Christian. Let me explain what I mean by that. I don't know where this kind of thinking comes from, who could say, but an all too common idea among Christians is that within the church there are really two distinct groups. 
There is the much larger group of what you might call ordinary, normal Christians. And then there's the smaller, somewhat more elite group of professional Christians, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Now, why would anyone think this? Maybe they think that ordinary Christians aren't the ones who have been given spiritual gifts. Only uh, the professionals, the pastors, teachers, and so forth are the ones who have been given the spiritual gifts. And so they are the ones who are equipped for ministry. But as we've already seen, that is mistaken. That cannot be the case because Paul says each one of us, not just pastors, teachers, and so forth, each one of us have been given spiritual gifts. Maybe the, the idea is that ordinary Christians only have ordinary or inferior spiritual gifts, whereas the pastors, teachers, and evangelists, the pros, they've been given sort of professional grade, superior spiritual gifts. And well, when it comes to ministry, the rest of us should just leave that work to the professionals. Having taught Sunday school for a number of years and just talked to people in the church, I have found that this is actually a surprisingly common notion amongst uh, church people. But again, this is mistaken. This confuses what Paul is trying to tell us. Friends, there is no hierarchy among spiritual gifts, and I feel that I cannot emphasize that enough this morning. The spiritual gifts that we have been given cannot be ranked in terms of importance. Uh, and so with some trepidation here, I point out that uh, the gifts of people like Billy Graham and Greg Blazing are not inherently superior. They're not more important than the gifts that you have been given, that I have been given. Each of us have been given the specific gifts that we have been given by God. And so they cannot be ranked in terms of importance. And in fact, by the way, Paul develops this very point at some greater length in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 25. And so again, our second point is that we cannot leave the job of serving the church to the professional Christians because there are no professional Christians. There's no such thing. So when you're in church and you look around and you ask yourself, who among this group of believers has been called to ministry, as Paul puts it in the first verse of this passage, who has been called to ministry? Your answer must be, Every single believer here, we're all called to ministry. Each of us, all Christians, are responsible for serving the church. In the remainder of our passage, verses 13 through 16, Paul completes his argument by explaining what is the aim, what is the purpose of serving the church, what is the purpose of ministry. Now, remember his flow of thought. Once we are born into God's family through faith in the Lord Jesus, each of us is given certain spiritual gifts, to enable us to perform the work of ministry. The, that is the graces from verse 7. And when we serve, we are serving the members of God's family. Now, to complete his thought, Paul explains that serving the church, that is building up the body of Christ, is done by using the spiritual gifts each of us has been given with an aim specifically at our corporate, that is our collective, maturity. Now, when the topic of spiritual maturity comes up, nine times out of ten, I think Christians immediately think in terms of individual spiritual growth. And certainly, we don't want to diminish the importance of that. Our individual spiritual growth is a very serious business. But I want to note with you that Paul's focus in this passage is entirely on our corporate spiritual maturity. 
But what does that corporate maturity look like? I mean, what, what does that mean? Well, in explaining this notion, Paul brings his argument full circle. I mentioned earlier that Paul develops two different distinct notions of unity in these verses. Back in the opening six verses, Paul talked about the unity of the Spirit. Recall, that's the Holy Spirit's work of uniting each one of us into God's family. And this, you recall, is the theological basis for all of this discussion. But now, in these closing verses, he presents the second kind of unity, what I think we can just call practical unity. Practical unity is what the body of Christ is being built up into. It's what we're striving for. Look what Paul says in verse 13. Ministry, that is, again, building up the body of Christ, continues until we attain unity. But this cannot be another reference to spiritual unity because, as we've already seen, that has already been accomplished by another, by the Spirit. And so the unity Paul has in view here is the unity that we, the church, must strive to attain together. It is the unity of our collective commitment to the life that we share in the Lord Jesus. Now, let me say that again. Practical unity just is the unity of our collective experience uh, of the life that we share in the Lord Jesus. So the church, the members of God's family, are already united in the Spirit, that is a fixed, unchangeable theological reality. But in seeking to attain practical unity, however, we strive together, always together, to make our shared experience, our shared life in the Lord, something that reflects that spiritual reality, our spiritual unity. In doing this, we strive to measure up to nothing less than the perfect standard of Christ, our head. Terrific. But how do we do this? How is this supposed to happen? How do we achieve practical unity? We achieve practical unity when we serve the church, that is, serve one another in love. And we serve one another in love by exercising or contributing our spiritual gifts to the edification of one another in love. What you must keep in mind is that, like it or not, we are a family. And as with any loving family, each of our members contributes something uniquely valuable. Unity is not uniformity. You know, we will have our differences on various issues, and we will sometimes be at loggerheads over situations. But because we are a loving family who is committed to our shared life in Christ, we tolerate these situations and these differences, and we seek the highest good for one another. I mean, think about it. It's this reason precisely that we can tolerate, indeed even love, the Aggies among us. <laughs> so these last four verses in our passage yield was a good third and final point about serving the church. It both requires love and results in love. As Paul says here in verse 16, as each one of us does its part, the body grows in love. Because true service to the church is always selfless and sacrificial and genuine, because of this, it's easy to see that it requires love. We could not do these things in the absence of love. I dare say that uh, most parents would not think of the endless loads of dirty laundry and dirty dishes that must be washed, anything like glamorous or anything like a bucket list item. But if you do, get with me after the service, I will hook you up. 
But nevertheless, parents selflessly and sacrificially serve their family day in and day out by doing these things in love. And as with any loving family, serving one another in this way just generates, you guessed it, more love, more love among the family. So these three points from Ephesians chapter 4, I, I think were an important part of what Paul taught the churches as he planted them about service. But as I was finished uh, preparing this sermon this week, a question occurred to me that may very well be looming in the back of your minds this morning. Perhaps you're thinking, okay, I get it. Uh, serving the church is about serving one another. I see that this will require the responsibility of all of us. We cannot leave this to the professional Christians. I see that serving the church requires and then results in greater love. But Lofton has said nothing about what I'm supposed to do, specifically my actions, in order to plug in to serving the church. I mean, what exactly am I supposed to do about all this? Well, that's true. I haven't given you anything like that, and indeed I cannot do so. You may, you may think that it would just be great if each Sunday after the service, pastor's at the back of the sanctuary and just hands out your weekly list of actions to do in service to the church, but uh, it just doesn't work that way. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit has given you the specific spiritual gifts which you have. You've been given these for the purpose of using them, contributing for the building up of the body. That's ministry. That's how we serve the church. What your pastoral staff does is extremely important, and we are just deeply thankful for the work of these servants. But which do you remember more clearly, the first sermon you heard this new year or the last time someone came alongside you and served you by comforting you or loving you or encouraging you just when you needed it? Well, if you're still just not sure specifically how to serve the church, then do this. Go to anybody on your church staff and tell them you're eager to plug in to serving the church wherever the church needs it. If you still can't find anything to do that way, then just look around the sanctuary on Sunday at literally anybody and say to yourself, what is anything that I can do to serve or edify that person? And when you do that, you will be serving the church. I guarantee you, you'll find a way to serve the church doing these things. So if we wish to have churches which are faithful, local expressions of the body of Christ, and I know that each of us do, let us retool our minds. Let us resolve to being members of the church who are committed to serving by the power of the Holy Spirit in unity leading to love. Let's pray. Our Father, we are just deeply grateful to you for the body of Christ. We thank the Holy Spirit for uniting us into God's family. We thank you for the salvation that you've made available to us in the Lord Jesus. And on the basis of these things, we are just so grateful that you have seen fit to design the church such that we do not just sit back and observe, but that we are participants in the ministry of the church. And of course, we cannot do this on our own, and we find when we try, we fail. We recognize that it's by the power of the Spirit that we perform ministry, and we thank you for that, and we call on you to help us to keep this in mind, to encourage us in continually serving one another for the building up of the body as our various churches seek to be faithful expressions of what you have given to us, the body of Christ. Help us each to look for what is our part, what is the role you've given us in terms of our spiritual gifts, and that we would have the wherewithal to serve you with them. 
Lord, we love you and we pray for your blessing on the rest of this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.